0: Welcome home. A podcast for veterans, about veterans, by veterans, is a project of Willing Warriors and the Warrior Retreat at Bull Run. Good morning. I'm your host, Larry Zilliox, Director of Culinary Services here at the Warrior Retreat at Bull Run. And today I'm really excited to have as a guest Dr. James Stone, who's with the University of Virginia in Charlottesville at the School of Medicine, and I read an article about his program, maybe not his program, but a program that they have going down there where they're studying uh, the effects of blasts on traumatic injury or creating traumatic injury in Tier 1 operators and troops that are subjected to multiple uh, blast events. And so I really wanted to have him on. I read this article, and I had about a million questions. Uh, we won't get to them all today, but uh uh Dr. Stone, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, sir. I really appreciate the interest and, and uh opportunity to chat with you for a little bit here today.
0: Yeah, if you would, could you tell us a little bit about the, the program itself, sort of the parameters of what you're looking at, uh maybe how it got started, um, and then we'll kind of go from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um You know, this really is a is a collaborative program, and you know, it it is. I think it's kind of a perfect example of of the phrase that it takes a village uh, when it comes comes to doing really significant things. And uh, you know, I've been part of a multidisciplinary, multi institutional group, and the the two key partners really have been uh, the Naval Medical Research Center, uh, which is now known as the Naval Medical Research Command, that's up in. up in Silver Spring in our program at the University of Virginia. And then we've had uh, various other collaborators that have included, uh, you know, folks out at University of Utah, uh, uh, Dr. Lisa Wild, uh, Dr. Jessica Gill up at, up at Hopkins and, and others. Our group in general has been really interested in looking at what the overall brain health effects are of repeated low-level blast exposure. And what we mean by that is that this is really uh, a phenomena. This is what we're really kind of interested in the phenomena of where folks are, uh, you know, service members are exposed to repeated blasts in their environment. And so these are not um, like the large explosions that one would expect to immediately remove uh, an operator from from, uh, the field and then have them sort of immediately checked out by medical and, and perhaps receive additional treatment. These are routine, repeated exposures that may be um, uh, from a situation uh, you know, involving breaching maneuvers, maybe mm-hmm. in a scenario where there is artillery that's involved, that uh, could even be in a scenario where there are, um, are various uh, EMD-related activities that are taking place. And these are considered just sort of routine, day-to-day um, exposures. What our group has really been looking at is what are the overall um, brain health effects? First of all, are, are there adverse brain health effects, and um, what are those effects? Then, how much is too much? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's kind of the the crux of what our what our program is looking at. And you know, in terms of when we got started, we started looking at this back in the two thousand six two thousand seven timeframe, and it all got started by. Uh, the the community really kind of um, self-presenting at that time. So this is right around the time when there was a lot of very um, striking information that was coming out of the Defense Veteran Brain Injury Center um, with um, some of the service members that were coming back from armed conflicts at that time. Mm-hmm. There was an extraordinarily high amount of traumatic brain injury that was being reported in those individuals, and there was also a um, significant association with glass exposure that was being uncovered from some of the very good work that was being done by uh, by that center um, at that time. It really, continues to be done by that that center as well, and so. With some of the public awareness that came from some of these studies that that were being done back then the the community of uh and really it was really breaching community back then um uh self-presented and basically uh were describing things like memory difficulties headaches um word finding issues and and other sort of cognitive symptoms that are kind of typically associated with mild traumatic brain injury um, and other brain related disorders and so I was pulled in at that point um, really as kind of the imaging representative from a broader group um, to take a look at uh, at uh, uh, at breachers and the study itself was um, what uh, really kind of came out of the uh, the Quantico uh, Dynamic Entry School, the Weapon Training Battalion up there, uh, where they do a number of uh, uh, different courses where well, where they will uh, teach breaching maneuvers. And so uh, we uh, basically were engaged to look at a group of students that came in for a two-week course. We're going to look at two different groups of two different two-week courses and we never intended on looking at the instructors of those courses, but the instructors, you know, sort of halfway along uh, the process of designing the study said, you know, hey, can we be involved in well as well? And of course, we wanted to be, them to be involved. Mm-hmm. Even though the study wasn't really powered for them to be involved, you know, we're, we're always you know, wanting, wanting to kind of partner with our communities. And um, this was something that we, of course, wanted to be accommodating around. And what we actually found was that a student or a group of students could come in and do this um, two week training course and before and after the course, um, based upon measures that we were using at that time, they really didn't have any kind of measurable differences coming into the course versus leaving the course. And these were folks that had relatively low, low levels of career um, blast exposure. But the instructors actually showed a difference. Mm. So the ex- instructors sh- showed some changes on some of the the memory tasks that we were using at that time, uh, and they also showed some changes on neuroimaging as well. and And that was really kind of the start of it all. Mm. Was um, you know looking at this relatively small small number of instructors and showing that that these. Folks who had been exposed to considerable amounts of blast, because you know they were involved not just in this one course, but they were involved in a lot of different courses, um, were in fact showing changes, and so that got um, a lot of attention, um, and it led to a number of follow-on studies, um, a, a lot of which you know our collaborative group have been involved in, um, that uh, have involved um, you know partnerships with. Uh, some of the New New Zealand uh, special ops folks down in in Auckland. Um, It's involved partnering with the NIH and looking at uh, career um, breachers. Um, It's involved study, um, looking at special operators, and uh, we're just racking up a study looking at personnel that work primarily with artillery um, over a career as well. Hmm. So it's been, you know, it really has been something that we've been, Working for a number of years now to to develop, um, but I think uh, there's enough sort of data that's come together at this point to to uh, to demonstrate that that yes, in fact, you know, cumulative exposures over time, um, while any one of those individual exposures into and of themselves don't necessarily cause detectable change, they can add up over time, and they can add up in a way that has an adverse consequence when it comes to brain health.
0: What do you see as the the ultimate goal for the Study results when you present your results, is this do you think going to re- turn around and, and change policy to say you can't you can't be exposed to a certain number of, of these low-level uh, blasts over a certain amount of time or do you think it will result in maybe redesign of warfighter equipment to better protect? Uh, the soldier uh, against these sort of issues. What what was the goal when you started the program?
1: Yeah, so I, you know, the goal when we started the program is to understand if this was a, objectively a real phenomenon. You know, to to bring objective information to some of the subjective reports that were being brought forward at that time to see if there was actually using the best measures that we had available at that time to see if there were things that we could see that were changing in blast-exposed individuals. And now that we've kind of demonstrated that that yes, indeed, it is really a phenomenon, it is really something where there is a cause and effect. Then, of course, the goal at this point is to be able to promote healthy brains, to be able to uh, promote uh, brain health, and, you know, the, 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 the Department of Defense, you know, Kathy Lee is up at um, the uh, Office of the Secretary of Defense, has been involved in, in a lot of this. Um, but, you know, there's a whole warfighter brain health program that's uh, launched in, in the last year or so that is um, not just about TBI, not just about BLAST, but it's about you know psychological health and otherwise it's all about basically maintaining warfighter brain health mm-hmm. and so that our our goals are very closely aligned with that program and that we're we're here really to try and keep warfighter brains as healthy as as possible and so that can take a lot of different forms it can take the forms of exactly what you just described which is you know. Asking and answering the, the "how much is too much" question, yeah. and so where is that threshold beyond which? And not every individual, not every service member is going to be the same. There's going to be some folks that are going to have uh, uh, a threshold that's slightly different, and that's sort of that's sort of true of really almost all diseases um, and, and environmental insults that we look at. But on average,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, where are those thresholds? Where after you get beyond those thresholds, then there may be. Um, notice noticeable near-term changes, and there may be um, significant risk for for long-term uh, changes as the warfighter ages um, as well. And so, understanding what those thresholds are, because once you understand what the thresholds are, then you can you know be making you know individual and, and unit-related decisions around what exposures look like. And and I'll say that. You know the other field that looks a lot like this is radiation exposure, um, and so you know there are folks that work with radiation on a, a day-to-day basis. Radiation workers, be them medical personnel or folks that work in an industrial setting, where they will have uh monitoring in some form or another or either it will be you know direct sort of badge related monitoring or it will be sort of a, a report of the types of environments that they worked in mm-hmm. and then there are decisions made um, sometimes around if someone is sort of getting up to a threshold of state exposures then you know uh, they may be moved into a different environment um, so um, they don't sort of, Sort of exceed what those those thresholds are, and you know there's there's this kind of general tenet out there. It's called the ALARA principle, which stands for as low as reasonably achievable. You know there, you know knowing that repeated blasts are something that can affect brain health, then there can be a general principle there of, you know, minimizing risk to to whatever degree is possible. You know, of course, much like radiation exposure, blasts is going to continue to be a part of training operations, but Mm -hmm. it's how do you end up minimizing um, blast while at the same time being able to kind of accomplish the mission yeah, um, or to be able to get effective training? And so that's one element of it. um, But, you know, of course, the ability to be able to design um, better gear and to be able to think beyond helmets that are designed primarily really now for ballistic purposes and to be able to sort of think about how you have um, headgear and other gear that, that may be made with the type of material that have the actual properties within the material to serve as a, as an, a damping um, barrier for the most injurious sort of frequency elements in the blast mm-hmm. uh, is another consideration. And then there's sort of a medical side of this, which is, are there things that you can kind of, you know, have on board before you might be exposed to a blast that might help? from an overall sort of biology, brain biology perspective, to kind of ameliorate on um, brain health related issues. Um and then on, you know, on the other side of it are there treatments um, that, you know, for folks that have had considerable exposures are having um symptoms as a result of those exposures. Are there things that can be done to improve their overall quality of life and, and to improve rehabilitation as well? So it really is a multi-pronged approach that spans the entire spectrum, from you know trying to minimize exposure, trying to have the best protective equipment possible, and then trying to work on really a biological level to uh, to be able to optimize brain health.
0: Mm-hmm. And I would say one of the one of the very first observations that you really come across there is to say, for a long time, it was widely believed tier one operators would not retire so much is that they would move from a operational status to more of a training status. And it sounds as though that's not a good idea here because you, they're being subjected to the same thing they were in the field, if not more. So the, the concept exactly. of being moved out of operations and into training, uh, I think they're going to have to take another look at for sure. I'm curious if you're Research has shown that at a certain point you reach that that high risk level, but then it really uh, it really ramps up rapidly a- after that. like um, after so many uh, exposures, do uh, you get to a point where much more damage is done by just a few more?
1: Yeah, that is a really important question, and we are actually just starting a study that is going to help us answer that question. Um, and so one of the biggest challenges in doing these kinds of studies early on was understanding what an individual warfighter's exposure context was, what their background was in terms of how much have they been exposed to, what types of weapon systems, um, what's sort of the frequency element to it as well, because we know in general, from other studies of traumatic brain injury, that if you have exposures that are really close to one another, then that can create a scenario where the brain is sort of responding and repairing from one exposure, but it doesn't have the ability to be able to completely repair. And so there's sort of a synergistic quality that can occur when you have things that are exposures that are uh, occurring um, one right after another. And so historically, when we first started doing this work, we really didn't have good tools to be able to kind of capture all of that. Mm. Um, And one of the things that has really come out of this work has been the um, creation of a self-report tool. It's a a pretty, pretty brief tool. It only takes about five minutes to complete, but it's called the BLAST Exposure Threshold Survey. Um, and it's something that an individual service member can fill out that basically captures uh, their career exposure in a structured way. Um, and so what that gives us is a set of really um, six individual numbers um, that describe what exposures have been um, by weapon system and then... Uh, gives sort of a cumulative single number that is meant to to be um, a representation of, of of a career exposure, mm-hmm. and so we've done um, a few different studies now, and there are a lot of other groups that have been picking up this uh, BETS tool uh, in in order to be able to uh, to understand you know what exposure has been in the groups that they're looking at as well. But we're embarking on a study that's going to look at the fact of duty as well as um, veterans and then we're going to look across a spectrum of exposure to try and ask and answer that how much is too much question and what we will get is not only what it looks like sort of moving up to that threshold where we start getting kind of conversion of some of these biomarkers that we're looking at that are a reflection of brain health but then we'll be able to see sort of the overall curve of how quickly things change Beyond um, that lo- that level, and so um, that'll obviously be very important to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking across the 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 sort of uh, lifespan really as well helps us to look at the other questions out there, um, which relate to: Does a you know career history of exposure is that a setup, or for you know neurodegenerative sequelae later in life? Mm-hmm. And what I mean by Third generation are really, you know, um, not necessarily classic Alzheimer's, classic Parkinson's, you know, or classic frontotemporal dementia, or some of these other things. But, you know, are there processes that are kind of put in place that are really sort of chronic, perpetuating processes that later in life uh, could manifest um, in a way that um, that has an adverse impact? Mm-hmm. Um, this This most recent study that we did that showed high levels of neuroinflammation, high levels of inflammatory activity within the brain, which we know is kind of central to so many of these other processes, really raises that question for us, which is, is this just a phenomena where you're kind of exposed and you have the immediate um, brain health-related effects of being exposed that are a reflection of of cumulative exposure, or does this kind of trigger a process? that is sort of a smoldering process that that worsens as things move on later in life, as can occur with some of these other sort of dementia-related conditions and things like chronic traumatic encephalopathy and otherwise. Mm -hmm. So that's really what what we're gearing up to look at in this study that um, we literally just started recruitment for in the last couple of weeks.
0: Now this tool, this BLAST measurement tool that you've implemented, is that an anonymous tool or does that get... Um, tagged to somebody's medical records.
1: It it is currently a tool that exists on paper, um, and so it is it's a it's a tool that is a questionnaire that can be filled out, and then there is an Excel spreadsheet that can be used as basically a calculator to uh, determine the results of that that tool. It is not there is no connection to anybody's medical record mm-hmm. with the, the tool with. With all of the studies that we're doing, they're very much firewalled from from a medical record. You know, there's uh, complete anonymity um, when it comes to the particular studies that we're doing. With the tool itself, um, again, it's it's really mostly a pencil and paper um, tool at this point. So there's no connectivity to a medical record. We are working on moving this towards um, an app, towards it being something that can be um, can be deployed on an iPad or an Android tablet. Mm our vision of that deployment would be something that an individual service member or somebody who's directing a study um, could download directly from the Apple or the Android store. But again, there would not be connectivity to an individual's medical record. It may be ultimately that the tool ends up being something that is worthwhile from a clinical perspective, but our implementation um, as we are envisioning at this point uh, would not be anything that would have uh, any, uh, any direct uh, medical record connectivity, record it would really be for the purposes of research. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd like to make it widely available so even a service member could could download it onto their tablet and they could get their own number.
0: Mm-hmm. So we have, we've just found that your tier one operators are, are very often reluctant to report injuries only because it yeah. can take them out of the game. And, uh, yeah. you know, that's that's their whole life for many of them. And so we see them with a lot of TBI, a lot of PTS uh, that goes unreported. I, I would hate for that to discourage participation in your research because the research itself is just like, so valuable, um, which leads me to the funding. Um, if I'm correct, uh, it's a DOD funding through the Navy.
1: That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's the it's through um come through a number of different channels. Um, you know, there is uh, funding that's come through uh the the group up the Fort Detrick Military Oper- Operational Medicine of at Fort Detrick has provided some some funding. Um there is section seven thirty-four was from the uh, National Defense Authorization Act a few years ago and there's an allocation of funding that came from that. So um, and certainly, we partner with the Navy on this. Um, the Navy has provided some funding, but it really comes from a number of different sources. But um, you know, all of these sources in common have have an interest in uh, helping to support uh, the uh, addressing some of these questions relating to brain health and blast exposure.
0: Mm-hmm. And where are you with that funding? Have you are you near using it up? Is it? Is there going to be more? I mean, just so important the work you're doing. I I hate to see it yeah. fall by the wayside because somebody didn't budget for it.
1: Yeah, you know, my I think our experience with this has been that this is this is a problem that is seen as a significant issue um, at all levels, and so um, you know, our impression has been that members of Congress are very very tuned into this. Um, and they're very engaged in advocating for their constituents when it when it comes to this. That um, folks um, at the pol- at a policy level are very aware of this, and they're very interested in um, helping to set some of the requirements that inform, you know, some of the funders, some of the program managers will help to sort of select from a funding perspective. Um, and then there continues to be an annual allocation for being able to fund this kind of research. And so, you know, I think there's um, very broad uh, recognition across. You know, really, all the different levels that I've been able to observe from, you know, my perspective, and you know, my impressions from other folks that I've sort of talked with, um, who are on the intramural side as well, that this is this is a problem that is seen as significant. Uh-huh. It's one that there's a recognition that there needs to be ongoing in, investment in, and you know, I think we've made some important progress in this space. We have a long ways to go. I, I think you know we're also very cued into the importance of being able to provide incremental um, gains back to the communities as we're able to provide them while we're still sort of working towards that long-term vision as well.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I know that there are a a good number of uh, VFW and American Legion members that listen to the podcast, and I would tell them that uh, this is serious, really important work And you need to discuss this at your post-meetings, at state meetings, at the national level uh, to make sure that there's pressure being put on, uh, that this funding doesn't go away for any reason. Doc, I really appreciate you taking the time to explain the program to us, give us a better understanding of what it involves and how important it is. Um, I do hope that uh, as you... You find out more, and it's relevant that you'll reach back out and and come on again as a guest because we'd really like to keep track of all the work that you're doing.
1: I'd love to do it, and uh, you know, really appreciate everything that that you and um, and all your listeners are are doing and, and have have done. So um, be be happy to uh, reach back out and uh, connect as we've got more to share.
0: Great. Well, for our listeners, uh, we'll have another episode next Monday morning at 0500. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach us at podcast at willingwarriors.org. Until then, thanks for listening. The Welcome Home Podcast is brought to you by Willing Warriors, a nonprofit organization serving active duty service members and veterans since 2012. To learn more, please visit our webpage at willingwarriors.org.